0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more
1: information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com.
0: Amen. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. Well, before we get into Romans chapter eight, we have just another little thing that we want to do this morning to encourage you. We as a church several years ago became part of a small network of churches called the Nine Marks Network. It started at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. by a church and pastor that we uh, have learned a lot from over the years. And several months ago, that network uh, put out, uh, a pastor in that network from the Boston area put out a a, a request from any churches in this small network for Uh, a a young man in any of our congregations that might be interested in going to serve as an interim pastor at a church in a city called Nashik, India. And uh, there is a pastor there who is from South Africa. He's a missionary from South Africa pastoring this church in India, and he is going home on furlough to spend some time at his home church and this brother from South Africa is connected to this church that we're connected to in the Boston area. That was asking if there was any young man that could go and be an interim pastor for four months at this church in Nashik, India, Nashik Reformed Baptist Church. And so and we thought. Yes, we've got a guy that would want to do that, so let's ask him. And uh, we have been asking and praying and, and hoping that Logan Copley would be able and willing to do this. And he was and has been in a conversation with this church. And so in a week and a half, the day before Thanksgiving, Logan who read our call to worship here this morning and you've heard preach a couple times at our Wednesday night fellowships and Sunday evening service is going to be getting on a plane and going around the world to Nashik, India, where he's going to serve as the interim pastor for four months of this church. So I wanted Logan to come on up. Come on up, Logan. And just to tell you about that. Yeah. <clears throat> and tell you a little bit about what he's going to be doing for the next four months.
1: Good morning. Uh, I'm Logan, like Brad said, and I'll be leaving for Nasik in a few days. Um, This next Sunday will be my last Sunday with y'all until the end of April, Lord willing. Um, Nasik is a city of about 1.5 million people. It's uh, the fifth holiest city in Hinduism. And so in the city itself, there are less than 1% Christian. Um, And so every Sunday, uh, uh, brothers from a church that I'll be serving at, go and pray at the hospital for people there. And there was a man from one of the villages outside the city who was in the hospital there praying for him, and this man had never even heard the name of Jesus. It is a very uh, dark city, and most people there have not heard the gospel. And so, and even many of the people who are uh, supposedly Christian on paper that, that make up that one percent uh, are part of a national church, and so don't have a a proper understanding of what Christ has actually done for us. And so I'll be serving as interim pastor there um, with them. It's a very small congregation of of about 15 members, and there are 50 people who attend on a typical Sunday morning. Uh, and so uh, and Nasik is in the state of Maharashtra, India, which is on the western part. It's the biggest state of India. Uh, it's where Mumbai is, which is sort of the cultural and uh, economic capital of India. And so... Um, that's where I'll be, and, uh, but if you could pray for me that I you will know, be faithful in preaching the word, I would have boldness, and, um, and that the, the saints would be encouraged there, and that also that people would be saved. Uh, there's a lot of work for the gospel to be done, and at the end of my trip, I will be traveling to New Delhi to visit some teams uh, with Pioneers Mission Agency. It's a mission agency I'm part of, and that Jeremy and Samantha are part of as well, and uh, so I'll be visiting them because, uh, Lord willing, I hope to move to India in a couple years to do church planning full time. But uh, thank you so much for your time and your prayers and those who have given towards my trip. I'm very grateful and uh, thank you again.
0: Friends, this is why we're doing a capital campaign to get this building fixed and pay off our debt so that for decades to come, the Jeremy and Samanthas who were in Central Asia right now from this church, and the Logan Copleys, and Lord willing, scores of other people from this church would be fueled by the mission's heart of this church to send people not just to our neighbors in this city, which also needs the gospel, by the way, but to the nations. And so we're going to pray that in these next four months, God would use Logan powerfully. He's going to be preaching in English with a translator, but Since he found out he's going to be doing this, I think he probably already knows the language there. This guy's brilliant, brilliant mind. He's probably, by the end of the time there, he'll probably be preaching in Hindi or whatever their language is. But let's pray that God would would bless uh, this brother, that he would make him fruitful in his ministry, that he would encourage that church, but that God would give clarity and would root in in Logan uh, a sense of clarity for for the future and for the nations and what God would do in him. And that, that as we pray for him and as we hear reports over the next four months that, that God would stir the hearts of people in this church, young people and old people. Well, how, how glorious would it be if, if the retirees of Cross Point didn't spend their life in leisure, but said, I'm done at the Muskogee County School District. I got a retirement, and I'm getting on a plane, and I'm going to spend my last two decades in a dark place that doesn't have the gospel. And what if a congregation in dusty little Columbus, Georgia, could fuel that? And what if young people were just inspired by this, and, and we became a, just a radical fountain for gospel ministry all across this world? Let's pray for that like, right now. that God would bless this this man, and God would move our hearts, and that God would bless David and Marie Baum in a couple months as they plant a church in our city from this church, and that God would, would expand our heart for our neighbors in the nations. Lord, we come to you thanking you for Logan, and for his gifts, and for this opportunity, and for how you saved him several years ago, and how you brought him into this community of believers, and Lord, thank you, thank you for, for the fruitfulness that we see of your gospel in and among our body. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for Pastor Gareth from South Africa serving this church in India and his family. And thank you for this, this body of, of believers, this small church with a few members and 50 or so attending. And, and the gospel witness that is in this critical city. We pray that you would go before Logan, that you would prepare the way for him in every way, that you would give him everything that he needs for life and godliness, and that you would empower him and give him boldness, and that his sufficiency would not be in his great gifts and mind, but in the power of the risen Christ. And that he would not preach in eloquence or anything of of human wisdom, but that you would give him a, a gospel boldness and that he would encourage the people there and that even the church would be added to and that, that people would, would pass from death to life and that, that he would serve this church well and while he's there, Lord, give him clarity and vision and expand his heart for the nations and for India and, and likewise expand the heart of this church and Lord, call us as a people to give away our lives for the sake of the gospel, whether it's to our neighbors in another part of our city or whether it's to the nations on the other side of the world. Go before our brother, and we, as his church family, commit to pray for him, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, and for the salvation of the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, brother. Amen. 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 Well, let's get into it. Romans chapter 8 is where we find ourselves this morning as we are journeying through the greatest chapter ever written. If you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to use one of the Bibles that's in the chair rack in front of you. You can find Romans chapter 8 if you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible. Romans 8 is in the New Testament, and it's the second half of the Bible. You can find Romans 8 on page 740 or 944 of those Bibles that are in the racks in front of you. And as we say every Sunday, if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to keep that Bible as your own. Let it be our gift to you. We've got three more messages in our series through Romans 8. We'll do some Advent messages in December. Longing for and looking for the coming of Christ and remembering Him coming as a a baby and longing for Him coming victoriously again, and then when we pick back up in January, we'll get back into another book. Maybe pick back up in Genesis or some other book, and we'll work our way through it. There are parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. There's no doubt about that. But then there are parts of the Bible that are, are, I think, relatively straightforward and clear, and this is one of them. I'm encouraged about the parts of the Bible that are hard to understand by Peter, who is one of Jesus's inner 12. He's one of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of the apostles. In fact, of those 12, he's in the inner three. And he becomes the great apostle of the church along with Paul in the New Testament and in is himself a Bible writer. And Peter says in his second letter, Second Peter chapter 3, at the end of that letter, he says about some of Paul's writings, man, some of that stuff is hard to understand. Not quite in in those words. So I'm encouraged that one of the Bible writers says about the Bible that that some of it's hard to understand, no doubt. But then there are verses like we're going to go over today that are just clear. And so we're just going to look at, I think, a very simple and straightforward statement from Paul that we've been building to as we've been journeying through Romans 8. Romans 8. And remember what we talked about last week as we looked at verses 28, 29, and 30. That we, in these verses, these last 12 verses of Romans 8, verses 28 through 39, now today we're going to look at 31 and 32, are the summit of the the Mount Everest of Romans 8, which is the highest mountain in all of Scripture. So let me read verses 31 and 32. And then we're just going to work our way back through very quickly and simply Paul's logic. We're going to revel in it. We're going to see it and stare at it. And then we're going to see it lived out and displayed through the baptism of a brother and sister from our church. Let me read verses 31 and 32, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, with him, graciously, give us all things? Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray that prayer, that simple prayer that, that I've been praying often here on Sundays. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And what we know not, we ask you to teach us. What we have not and truly need, we ask you to grant us. And what we are not, we confess that we are completely dependent on you to make us. By the power of your word and your Holy Spirit, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this, these two verses are broken down into four just simple clauses. So we're going to put the screen, the, the, the verse on the screen, and we're just going to stare at it for a few minutes, and then we're going to celebrate the gospel in baptism. The first sentence there, Paul says, What shall we say to these things? What are these things that Paul is, is saying we should respond to? Well, in one sense, we could certainly say that these things are all that he has written up to this point in the letter of Romans, the, church, the letter to the church at Rome. But let's just confine ourselves to just what he's written in chapter 8. He starts off in the first few verses telling us that there is... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And remember when we started this series through Romans 8, we we just settled down on that idea that there is no condemnation. I think it's easy for us to think about our past sins, but there's there's no past condemnation, there's no present condemnation, and there is no future condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not a blanket phrase for everybody just because they... They think it might be true of their lives. It is for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are trusting in what he has done through Christ, the God-man who lived a perfect life and bore our sin on the cross and rose victoriously over sin and death. For those that are trusting in that, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The next few verses, verse 5 through 11 in Romans 8, tell us that there is this promise of the resurrection that just as Jesus was raised from the dead so too shall our breaking down crickety crackety mo- mortal bodies also be raised again. So life is not just these 70 or 80 or 90 years. I remember when we started this church 10 years ago, I kept talking about how life is just not these 70 years. And then, praise God, we had an older saint join the church who was in her 80s. And she said, Brad, come on. don't shave off a decade, man. Give me me a little bit. So 70 or 80 or 90 years. Life is not just these 80 or 90 years, but it is the promise of eternity with God forever and ever, and we shall be raised just as Christ is raised. And then in verses 12 through 17 of, of Romans 8, he gives us this sweet assurance that not only has he made us right through Christ, but he has adopted us and given us his Holy Spirit and the Spirit now dwells within us and it cries out and it confirms in our soul that we are children of God but he continues in Romans 8 uh, chapter 8 verses 18 through 25 that even though all these things are true in the life of a Christian we will still struggle in fact we groan and in fact the world groans around us because this world is broken and even that is somehow under God's sovereign providence that it says that He, the one who subjected the world to futility, the one who has this grand design for the fall and evil and everything that happens, but is still completely good and gracious, that He is bringing and working all things together for this final revealing of the full glorification of the children of God. And so even though all of these things are true in us, we are still living this existence in this broken world, marching towards that final day when everything will finally and fully be made right. And then he assures us in verses 26 and 27 that he knows that we are weak and that life is confusing. And he doesn't leave us alone. He gives us his presence, his Holy Spirit to pray for us and to come alongside us. And when we don't even know what to say, he prays alongside our groans, even in the most perplexing and confusing of times. And then last week, we looked at the most beautiful portion of scripture, I think, in maybe the whole Bible, Romans 28 through 8, 28 through 30. Let me read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we saw last week that unbreakable chain of salvation. That Those whom he foreknew, read that as for love. Those who in eternity past, he set his love on. Not because of anything good in them, but solely because of his free and overflowing grace and love. Those whom he foreloved, he guaranteed where they would end up. That's predestination. And those whom he guaranteed where they would end up, he in some point in their life called them... opened up their ears and gave them a heart that could believe even though they were dead in sin as the Bible depicts all of creation. He called them. He gave them life. He made them alive. And when they became alive and had a new heart, they then were now able to put faith in what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection. And when they put their faith in Jesus, they are now justified That's the next link in the chain. And he says, those who are justified, I will not lose. In fact, you will be sure, that you can be sure, that I will complete what I have started. And he speaks about the future, that last link in the chain of being glorified. In the, in the past tense, he's saying, this is so certain that it's going to happen, that you can speak of it as already having been done in your life, and you will be glorified. And now Paul as he's standing on the summit of the highest mountain in scripture then says verse 31 he asked this rhetorical question what should we say to these things in response to this what should we what should it produce in us right Paul is, is lifting our gaze to the very height of spiritual truth and God's work in all of creation, standing on the very tippy-top of Mount Everest of the Bible. And he's saying, what should this produce in us? The answer to that is, yeah, well, well, what time's lunch? I <laughs> wish you'd hurry up so I can check Facebook. In fact, some of you are probably checking Facebook right now. Right? and Paul is saying you're on the summit of the greatest truth what should this produce in us friends I-, I want us to see this before we move on to the next clause that we were not just created to look at and to receive and to be recipients of this great truth. But we were created to respond. Paul is calling for a response. He's saying that these glorious, grand truths should produce something in us. It should produce in us more love for God. It should produce in us more obedience that leads to more joy and more zeal in fighting against our sin. It should produce in us Awe-inspiring worship. And Paul starts off this, these two verses by saying, what shall we say to these things? But friends, we are in danger. Aren't we Aren't we so in danger of it just becoming so blasé to us? We live in the danger of living in a Christianized culture. And we sort of look at pity and, oh gosh, we, we, our hearts break, and rightfully so, for people that are being persecuted in other lands. You know, in some way, that might be God's kindness to them. Think about this for a second. It might be God's kindness to cause people to really hold on to Him in very difficult situations. And for some people in America, it really might be God's judgment on us in giving us over to comfort because our hearts are drawn away so easily. Paul is calling for a response from us. And then the next question, the next clause He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is another rhetorical question, but but, but Paul poses it, and and it's it's worth us thinking about. There are some things that are against us when we think about it. There's our remaining sin. There's a broken world around us. There is an accuser, the enemy, who is accusing us day and night, There's a world that is against the gospel. None of this should surprise us. Jesus says that the world will hate us just as it hated him. In fact, the mark, I think, of a true gospel witness and a true gospel church is controversy and conflict and hatred to some degree from an unbelieving world. But Paul is saying that in light of all that God has done for you, Christian, in comparison to that what are all these things that are against you? What are they in comparison to what God has done? He's wanting us to drink deeply from this well of Romans 8 and say that if God has justified me and if God promises to resurrect my mortal body and if He's given me His Holy Spirit and if He has guaranteed that my struggle will eventually end in glorification and if He's given me His Holy Spirit and if He's for loved me and predestined me and called me and justified me and glorified me, then what can this world do to me, is what he's saying. So we've done it before. Let's do it again. What's troubling you the most? Think about it right now. Because Paul in this rhetorical question, he's not saying if God is forced, who can be against us? As if there's nothing actually that's against us. No, there are things that are against us. Real things. But in comparison to where we stand in Christ if we are Christians, they fall away. So think about it right now. What what is most against you? What are you facing? Some diagnosis from the doctor? Some difficult relational thing? Maybe you're just becoming very, very aware of your own Still, sinful heart. I think about that a lot, and God is saying, "No, whatever, whatever you're fighting with, you are wrestling with, whatever is against you. If God is for you, that's nothing." And then He continues. So He's saying, "What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us?" And then He gets us a little bit deeper into what it means to have God for us. The next sentence there, verse 32. How is God for us? And how do we know that God is for us? He says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What does it mean that God... Would give up his son for us all. And for the all, there, the all is not just everybody, it is those. It's the those back from the chain of Romans 29 and 30, those whom he's for love, those whom he's predestined. Those whom he's called, those whom he's justified, those whom he's glorified, those who have been moved on by the Holy Spirit as they've heard the gospel, who have turned from trusting in themselves and put their faith in what Jesus has done. Those those are the people that God has, has reconciled to himself through his son. And he did it at great cost to himself. And so he says that we can know this because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. To understand what this is saying to us. And friends, this is the very heart of the gospel. We need to understand a few things. We need to understand the holiness of God. Listen, listen intently to this, especially if maybe you're not sure what Christianity is all about or you're new or you're visiting. The message of Christianity is not that you need to clean yourself up and do better. The message of the gospel, the message of the Bible... The most important news in the world is that God is the supreme, glorious, good, sovereign creator of the universe. And he created us in his image. He created our first parents, Adam and Eve. And they sinned. They rebelled against him. He created them with a freedom to either follow him or not. And they chose to rebel against him. They rebelled against just the one thing that he told them not to do. And as a result, we are all like our parents, right? Just like my children look like my wife and I, hopefully more like their mother than me. They have my DNA. They have my physical DNA. We likewise have our first parents' spiritual DNA. And the Bible says that because of Adam and Eve, our first parents sin death sin entered into humanity and it spread everywhere and it caused death and it rendered us completely unable to make ourselves right with a holy and good god so here's the here's the news of the bible not that you should do better but that god is holy and we are fallen and you cannot do anything about it there's nothing you can do the bible says that we are dead in our sins we are completely unable to do anything that would satisfy the holiness of a eternally, gloriously holy God. And that our sin deserves infinite punishment because it's been committed against the infinite holiness of a sovereign God. So how can a finite person atone for and make up for the holiness of that has been transgressed of an infinitely holy God. So we are in a predicament. God is holy, and sin is far more serious than we imagine. And in response to that predicament, this verse, God then comes to us in the form of his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally preexistent son, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, existing forever, having no beginning, having no end, and in the fullness of time, God the Son, the Bible tells us, comes to earth as a man. He takes on the likeness of sinful flesh, as we read in Romans 8, in the first few verses, and he lives a perfect life. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, lives a life of complete obedience, where we disobeyed, where we transgressed God, where we rebelled against God, Jesus, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, comes and lives a perfect life, restoring righteousness in the flesh and becomes a perfect example of what it means to be human and to obey God. And because our sin and problem and the consequences of it was God-sized, we needed a God-sized solution to it. And so God comes himself in the flesh, Jesus, and he lives a perfect life and then lays down his perfect human and fully God-life on the cross and then bears the wrath of a holy and righteous God for the people that would ever, all those that would ever turn and trust in him. And so when that verse says that He did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, friends, there's so much more going on there than than just this sort of romantic love of God for His people. It's not God just hoping that we would just, you know, get it right and trust in Jesus. But God is sending God the Son to live in the flesh, to bear the punishment for our sin and then to rise again in victory over it. He is inviting us into the fellowship and the love that he has for his son as he punishes his son for our sin. So in a sense, we are saved by God, from God, for God. And that's what's happening in this all-powerful sentence. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then the last phrase. And this is Paul's glorious conclusion. If God did this, everything that we've talked about in Romans 8, and he made it all happen by the perfect sacrifice of his son to absorb his wrath, now because Jesus is all holy, he's the only one that can satisfy God's justice and he has extinguished it and because Jesus is all holy and because he's all righteous and because he's God and man now God's holiness and punishment for our sin has been satisfied that's why we're no longer condemned because Jesus has has taken our condemnation and risen again in victory over it, because of that now how will he and this is the last phrase, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. Notice Paul's logic here. He's done all this, and he's done it all through the perfect sacrifice of his eternally holy Son, who has conquered sin, conquered wrath, extinguished the consequences, rose in victory over it, made us alive through his gospel by the Holy Spirit. Now, if He's given us the greatest treasure in the universe, how will He not also give us all things? That's the logic here. So if you have Christ, if you are a Christian, Paul is saying, you have all that you have that you need. At first glance, we might might look at this And might conclude that that we are actually the primary focus here. That God in his love for humanity was so focused on reconciling us that he said, Jesus, we've got to go do this because my my primary focus is these people. And we might, I think, unwittingly, wrongly conclude that we are the focus here. But I don't think that's actually what the, the Bible teaches. We are actually the beneficiaries of God's focus on glorifying His Son. And because He's glorified His Son through His work, we then, with Him, get everything. Because we read it a few weeks ago, we are fellow heirs with God the Son. God loves us because He loves His Son. And we are united to Him. By, get, by grace through faith. And so the reason that we have all things, that He's going to give us everything, is because we are in Christ if we're a Christian. And He will graciously give His Son all glory and all honor. And we become beneficiaries of the Father's love for the Son. So what does Paul mean by all things? And how do some people often misunderstand that. Well, if you've been around Point for a while, you know that we uh, would reject the prosperity gospel, which you may, if you watch TBN, you may have come across, where maybe a preacher will get up and say that if you will just believe God more, then he'll give you these blessings here on earth. Or if you oftentimes as tight, if you will give to our ministry, then you will be blessed. Notice we didn't do that. Notice that Jimmy didn't say, if you fill out that response card, God will open up the windows of heaven. I mean, that's just ridiculous, right? That's, that's just false. And we rail against the prosperity gospel. Because it sees and wrongly interprets verses like this as meaning that if we're a Christian, then, then God will give us all things. And they zero in that all things to meaning temporal and earthly comforts but I think that actually the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it aims too low it's not prosperous enough it's not prosperous enough what's in view here is not silly little trinkets that moth and rust destroy think about this christian what has been promised you is not promotion or a handsome husband or a good-looking wife or a healthy child or social acclaim or a nice house or whatever. God hasn't promised you those silly little things, That not that they're unimportant, but He's promised us so much more. And what He's saying that is if you are in Christ, if He has forloved you, and He's determined your future, and He opened up your heart by calling you and giving you ears to hear, and justified you by the eternal sufficient sacrifice of His Son, and promises to glorify you, you should lift your gaze, because what awaits you is far more than anything these 80 years could offer you. And if you see that, that has a a wonderfully transformative effect On the way this world can or cannot get to you. And so you can say. In the midst of a terrible situation. Of heart-wrenching pain. Of struggling against your own sin. If God is for me because Jesus laid down his life. And he's given me all things in Christ. Why do I. Why do I search after these little trinkets that ultimately in the grand scope of eternity mean nothing? And friend, what does that produce in us? It produces in us a boldness to give our lives away for the sake of the gospel. It produces in us a confidence that he who began a good work in me will carry it to completion for his glory. That's what Paul is commending to us. Is life not what you expected it to be? It was never meant to be what you expected it to be. It was meant to be so much more. Lift your gaze, dear Christian. Lift your gaze, young man struggling with lust. He has predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. You are on an unstoppable jet stream of grace that is propelling you towards Jesus that cannot be thwarted by any image on a screen or any weakness of your flesh. And let your sanctification be propelled by saying, if God is for me, nothing can be against me, not even my own weak flesh. If some relationship has been destroyed in your life and you now find yourself under some social stigma of failure, And you think that that is what defines you, dear friend. That is not true. If God is for you, divorce, broken relationship cannot be against you. If you receive some terrible diagnosis or some loved one is undergoing some terrible tragedy and cancer is the word from the doctor's lips. We can pray and ask God to heal you, and in His kindness He may do that. But ultimately, friends, even if cancer takes your life in four months, if God is for you, who can be against you? And your life has not been cut short unbeknownst to God, but He has given you all things, and He will give you all things forever and ever and ever. If you are a young executive or a young man who just Hoars out your heart after success and stuff and acclaim and you are a Christian but you're a weak Christian and all of your view is horizontal and you just want stuff. and and you want everything that would make you feel good about yourself and you just want leisure and you want to hoard stuff so that you can be comfortable and retire early and be a self-absorbed, worthless Christian. God right now is telling you that those all things are not sufficient all things. They are too little. He's wanting to lift your gaze and say, Give it all away. Give it all away because you've been promised everything in Christ. And let that finally, maybe for the first time, unclench your hands from this world and grab a hold of God and future and and give your life to Him. Oh, I I need this truth. I need this truth. Friends, I confess to you that I, I at times just, I lose so much perspective. I get so discouraged with... The state of my heart, I get so easily discouraged, and I, I need these words to be like steel in my spine, to prop me up when I am being self-absorbed and self-pitying, and I need these words to give me Holy Spirit, gospel-fueled, Christ-centered steel in my spine when I'm being a wimpy, self-absorbed pastor, Self-pitying myself because things aren't going like I want them to be. I need to lift my eyes above something better than a large church or better than somebody agreeing with me all the time or better than somebody patting me on the back or or just loving me. I need something better than that. I need the all things that He has promised me in Christ forever and ever and ever. And if that is what He has promised me, then who can be against me? My weak heart, friends, my weak heart needs that. So I'm not, I'm not a strong Christian saying you need to tidy up, boys and girls, and be a little more like me and Paul. I'm saying I, 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 <laughs> I need this. I can't, I can't survive without this truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him for me and for those of you that are trusting in Christ, how will he not freely give me all things? Oh, Oh. Father, I want to believe that more. I I want to believe that more. And I want these people that I I love so much, I want them to believe that with every fiber of their being. God, if you were for us, who, who could be against us? God, work that in my soul. Work that in the soul of this church. And unclench our fists from this world. And do whatever, whatever you want with me and with us, I pray. For the glory of your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.